It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How is 2018 treating you so far? Well, it hasn't sort of gone off the cliff yet. That's that's the spirit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you feeling sort of new new year, new new beginning, new dawn? Yeah, I'm on a terrible, unhealthy yo-yo diet. Are you? Yeah, because I, I, I want to look svelte for when we do the live show at the end of the month. Yes, you you've know. got some way to go. <laughs> I've, I've got real, it's quite a long way to go. You're, you're, but... you're going for the shaggy beard. Oh, yeah. It's Ed's a little a... David Bellamy look. I'm not sure that anybody wants to be told they look like David Bellamy. Bellamy. But there might be nature program opportunities for you. <laughs> I thought it might be a new sort of new direction. <laughs> so you're not approving of the big beard? No, no, it's then. nice. It's good. It's honestly, it's, it's, uh, it, it, we should move on. Yes. How, what about you? I'm concentrating on losing weight in an unhealthy way to do with diet rather than having What's to do What's your diet? It's basically chewing gum and protein balls. That's why you're not having any lunch. Yeah, that's why I'm not having lunch today, yeah. Because I think rather that than do exercise, because me and exercise aren't a very good fit. I don't I don't do well with any kind of physical just exertion. just walking. Honestly, you can just go walking around the streets. You think I should take out the stand But I was actually quite annoyed because our podcast, you know, had a rip-roaring beginning to 2018. But unfortunately, rip, it, was rip, it was out rip-roared by the NHS some NHS podcast from 2012 about how to do a 5K from being a couch potato. Did you did you see my tweet about I this? I did see this. This, yeah. this is upsetting. It's, it's like, you know, Blue Planet 2 all over again. <laughs> so you're, you're We're being denied the Last year's enemy spot. was David Attenb- Attenborough. Yeah. Well, no, he's not the enemy. The enemy was it? David Attenborough. No, this year's enemy is the well, NHS. Yeah, no, no, definitely not. But, you know, you, you, get, you get my general drift. Now, I've gone walking. So you are exercising them? Yeah, you know, I've got one of these watches that tells you how many steps you're doing, and my children are quite encouraging about doing, it was 11,000, it's dropped because I've had two bad days. But So I was on a walk uh, yesterday, actually, and uh, it was a slightly strange experience because this woman um, 
was sort of passing by and she was handing out little flyers for a YouTube video. I haven't watched the YouTube video. And so she said, oh, would you watch my YouTube uh, video? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, Michael Portillo, she said to me. What? Uh, and I said, no, no, I'm not Michael Portillo. I said, I said, Miller Band, she said, oh, yes, of course. Anyway, I looked him up. He's Michael Portillo 64. I mean, you know. <laughs> I've never been mistaken for Michael Portillo ever before. I wow. mean, that is, a, that is a definite 2018 first. Well, maybe, you know, if the BBC are listening, Ed could be a good stand-in for him on his no, Railways documentaries. Not, no, 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 I think, you know, that's not my... I don't think it's my bag, really. I do like going on trains, as you know, and having my best conversations on the trains, but I'm more interested in the people on the trains rather than, I mean, the countryside and history and all that is important, but it's the people on the trains that So I you like. were never a train spotter? No. no. I was. You were a train spotter? Very, very briefly. When? When I was 11 and I went from primary school to big school, I was finding it a little difficult to make friends. And my dad told, said, why don't you join a club? So I thought, that's a good idea. I'll join a club. I looked at what clubs they had and there was a train spotting club. And if you're trying to make yourself more popular, any 11-year-olds cool. listen to this, if you are trying to make yourself any yeah. more cool and popular, yeah. probably the train spotting club isn't the one, one to join. Not top of the list. No. But I, I left after a couple of weeks. We went on a field trip to Birmingham New Street Station. <laughs> What was it like? You have to literally write down the numbers of the trains. Yeah, and then you get home and you tick them off in a book. Presumably it's been revolutionised since the internet because you can actually look up what they look like. Presumably, but I don't. I think you could always buy books of what trains look like. I think the the pleasure in it um, is to be able to see them yourself and then tick them off a That's, list. Is it to spot an unusual one? I guess so, but I mean, I didn't spot any. Somebody unusual who ones. You, used to work for me has got a uh, sort of challenge, which is to go to the least used stations in Britain and he goes around the country. He's about my, he's younger than me and he, he that's his thing. So he is a real train spotter. Do you think he's lonely? No, no, he isn't. He's got a, you know, a kid and a what, lovely wife and all of that. Does he take them with him? Yeah, he does, I think. Oh, that poor kid. Well, I think the, the kid's quite young, so it's probably oblivious. won't have an impact on him. Blissfully quite, unaware. Quite, quite, quite yet. Um, so should we talk about what we're doing on the... Yes, yes, let's do it. And I, I prepared when um, Ed and everyone turned up earlier, I'd prepared a special playlist of songs to get us yeah. in the mood for this week's topic. Come on, come on. <laughs> do the locomotion. I know. Yeah. Maybe that should be our karaoke. Maybe we should do the dance live no, on stage no, at the no, Leicester Square no, Theatre. definitely not. Definitely not. So we're talking about the great train robbery. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing of our railways, the more you read about it, the more you think it is slightly unbelievable the position we've ended up in. Because if you look at the, the – these figures came out earlier this week, uh, which said that um, we pay higher prices. And so, for example, if you want a season ticket from Chelmsford to London, it's, you pay 13% of average income, of your average income or, or an average income. Uh, and that's compares to as little as these are TUC figures: two percent in France, three percent in Italy, four percent in Germany, five percent in Spain and Belgium for similar, for similar journeys, similar length journeys. So you, so so the prices are high, and actually that's borne out by the latest, like the European Commission does these comparison figures. We've got the second highest prices among European countries. So you think okay, who is the well, highest out of interest? It looks like the highest is Austria, um, right? So you, so we've got high prices. So you think well. Maybe that's because we have low subsidies. But we've got the third highest subsidy in the whole of Europe. So, so the taxpayer is paying among the highest, among the most in, of any European country. 
and the passenger is paying among the most in any European country for this system that, you know, people, lots of people have lots of complaints about the, you know, quality of the service, the number of carriages, having to stand up, all of that stuff. So what what was it that made us so different? Why did we take a different route to all these well, other we private, countries? Well, we private, you know, because so, of the privatisation in the 90s. So I remember that happening, but was that purely ideological or was that the way a lot it of looked, countries were no, going and, and no, we've done it badly? it's pretty ideological. It's pretty ideological and we're pretty much an outlier. But here is the most extraordinary thing of all, I think, about this, which is we've got a privatised system, except not really. Let me just read you the, the Daily Telegraph, that well-known left-wing rag, uh, what they wrote um, just, just after New Year about this. Um, and they said this, Swinging rail fare hikes across the UK have prompted fresh calls for the renationalisation of the railways, a policy that Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has championed. But 72% of rail franchises are already backed by the state, just not ours. Analysis by the Daily Telegraph shows that 18 out of 25 rail franchises are currently run by foreign state-backed operators, and that number is set to rise. So here is the most extraordinary thing, right? The, the, and this is about the franchises, because Network Rail, which runs the infrastructure after uh, being sort of sent to the private sector, has ended up basically back uh, as on the government's balance sheet in the public sector. But here's the extraordinary thing. You know, the, the government's position is essentially, no, we can't run the railways ourselves with a state-run company. We'll just get other state-run companies from other European countries to come and do it for us. And if they make profits, they plough it back into their railways and their system. Right? That is the situation. So, so most people, I think I'm right in saying, or at least most franchises in the UK are basically nationalised systems. They're just other countries' <laughs> nationalised systems, not ours. So why aren't they better then if these people are running the trains well, so well in their own countries? Well, I mean, look, that's what we've got to find out. But presumably it is part of – I think it's got to have something to do, and we'll talk about the solutions to this, but it's got to have something to do with the nature of our franchising system, the nature of the way our system works. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But, you know, I must say what struck me really about the debate about this is even those people who want to say nationalisation and public ownership is not the answer. And by the way, just on the public, what does the public think about this? The the polls differ a bit, but there was a populist poll recently that showed that 65% of Tory supporters and 86% of Labour supporters wanted public ownership. As I say, some of the figures are slightly lower in other other polling companies, but, but overall 76% of the public wanted uh, public ownership, twenty four percent didn't. But but you know, even in the debate about this, even those who say we shouldn't have full nationalisation, it's quite hard to find people who really defend the current system. The current system feels pretty busted, mm. uh, and the question is, what do we do about it? And so we're going to be talking to uh, Andrew Donis, Lord Adonis. He just recently resigned, I think, on New Year's Eve as the head of the government's infrastructure commission. Um, because, well, it was partly about Brexit, but it was also about a particular decision that Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, had made around East Coast, the East Coast Line and Virgin and Stagecoach and, and, and the relationship with them. We're going to be talking to Andrew just about, you know, the reasons for his resignation. He's a former Transport Secretary. Uh, then we're going to be talking to Anton Volk. Now, he's been a big player in the Dutch railways. He then... Uh, ran Abilio, which ran some of our railways on behalf of the Dutch 
railways, the nationalised Dutch railway. So just getting a perspective from him. Uh, and then we're going to be talking to Nicole Badstuber, who is uh, a, basically an analyst and expert on these issues, who works in uh, the University College, University College London, uh, about what are the solutions. And that's where we're looking for reasons to be cheerful. I suppose there's reason to be cheerful in the way that the public um, are open yep. to different yep. solutions and, and state funding, and there's reasons to be cheerful in in how they're doing it in other countries right yeah and i think we've got to learn from other you know eventually you can't keep doing the same thing and just and sort of you know not looking beyond your shores you've got to think well why are other countries getting it right and we don't seem to be getting it right when, when i head back up north to visit my family it's generally virgin trains who are okay some of the time but sometimes it's like the evacuation you can't get a seat um they decommission all the bookings like the heating or the air conditioning often isn't working and the toilets ed they have these very annoying signs which say things like don't flush your goldfish or down the toilet boyfriend sweater down the toilet yeah and and I find that very irritating. Why? Because you had taken the goldfish onto the train specifically <laughs> for, that, for that purpose. I just, there goes the goldfish, you thought. Damn! I just think as a brand... My attempt to murder the goldfish has stop, been stopped. Stop, stop spending your money on your brand having a personality yeah. and try and have it on the trains running running a bit They better. always seem to run out of food. I mean, yeah, lots of people have lots of complaints about, about the trains. The other thing about this is the ticketing of these different franchises. I mean, I think one of the things that is really bad is you can look at the price per kilometer and all that and i said they're quite high but it's the nature of ticketing and trying to you know getting a decent deal people find incredibly hard particularly when you're going on a journey that involves more than one operator yeah yeah and you know you get people have to kind of stand on their head buy three single tickets etc etc in order to get a decent price quite often no wonder people have pretended to be asleep when the ticket inspector comes around. And people are exactly, or, or hiding in the toilet with their goldfish. Uh, <laughs> but but you wish they're about to flush down it. But but the um, I don't really approve of flushing goldfish down the toilet just for any goldfish <laughs> lovers who are out there. But the um, not if they're alive anyway. You do you do think? I think even if they're dead, I don't think things for antisocial. But the it should have a decent burial. The goldfish. Uh, um, where's your heart, man? Um, uh, but the uh, I would say that we're quite cl- you know p- the figures from the public show this. I mean, people are pretty fed up with the system, aren't they? Mm. Well, might is my sense. Lots to uh, lots to be getting into. Now, tell now. me, tell me, and we should, and and maybe uh, we'll also put up a link to my Spotify playlist of train songs. Yeah, we should definitely yeah. do that. Oh, we right. should definitely do that. Tell us who else is coming in. Yeah, also coming in to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We have comedian Ahir Shah, who had a big hit show in Edinburgh last year. It's called Control, and he's quite brilliant. Um, he sort of had lots of thoughts about Brexit in his show oh, and the sort of generalisation of um, Brexit voters and so on. And he's great. really funny, so he'll be joining us later. Fantastic. What's your reason to be cheerful? I'll be honest, I barely left the house this year. That's a reason to be cheerful. Yeah, so, so there we go, there's mine. Um, so a, a lot of it's just been watching TV and... Maybe I, we should go for walks together. Do you maybe fancy I should, it? Maybe I should sort of... Infor- maybe I should be your, become your personal trainer. <laughs> But we'd have to stop every 10 metres while somebody had their selfie taken with you and doesn't want me in it, which isn't going to be good for my already poor self-esteem. Yeah, no, that's true. I'd be very nice to you. Anyway, yeah. sorry, sorry. So, so you so didn't leave the house. Barely left the house. So uh, uh, as much as a reason to be cheerful as I have is probably binge-watching Black Mirror Ooh, on the telly. I've the new Black Mirror. Have you never watched any no. of it? I wonder if it might be a bit bleak for you. Mm. It's... Um, 
yeah, famously, it's 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 almost like a modern tales of the unexpected. It's these dystopian mm-hmm. tales written by no, Charlie I like, Brooker. I want something sort of cheerful. Yeah, it's 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 not cheerful. A couple of the episodes, I think, are quite beautiful, and there's a lot of humanity in them. But Charlie Brooker, who writes them, he is such a genius. Doesn't it make you feel quite bleak by the end of the? the I feel end? quite bleak anyway, so it's nice to just see that reflected on the television. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. How about you? Do you have a reason to be cheerful? I do, and it's it sort of relates back to our Christmas episode. So, you know, you do that sort of clearing up thing after Christmas. I had the copy, the box of Class Struggle. The box was a little bit torn and everything, so I thought we'll sellotape up the box, make it sort of a bit nice for the very nice people who sent it to us. And I sort of sellotape it up, it's, it, it, sort of get it ready to sort of send off back to them, you know, not as good as new, but sort of basically in the condition we found it. And then my son Daniel saw it and was like, Class Struggle, I want to play that. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, mm, well, I'm supposed to be returning it. And he's like, no, 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 I want to play that. So oh, then no. we went for said walk. Um, and he said, I really want to play Class Struggle. <laughs> I mean, basically, it just goes down the generation. The cycle it? continues. I know, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, so I sort of made my excuses. Anyway, then him and Sam played Class Struggle. And I, I think Sam was the workers. Daniel was the capitalist. And Sam won. Anyway, so my reason to be cheerful... <laughs> <laughs> is that the class struggle and what was very interesting was it took us we kind of cut this bit out thankfully emma cut all of this out it took us quite a long time to kind of understand the rules it took them about five minutes it was like sam was like yeah yeah we had land on the alliance square the farmers alliance i did an alliance with the farmers da di da di da i had 37 assets and one debit and you know i won etc oh, etc no. et so one of your sons is going to be doing a podcast in 40 years from now Just handing and then it all on of a sudden have this memory handing it oh, on hang to on we used to play class struggle as kids but apparently also i think we should get some credit even a commission from the uh, creators of the game because somebody tweeted that there was now a run on eBay on Class Struggle. I mean, it is the new Bitcoin, <laughs> as I tweeted. <laughs> Never mind Bitcoin. You should be putting the safe place to put your money is in shares in Class Struggle. And you feel good about it as well. I'm not sure if the Marxist academic who created Class Struggle would approve of that. Well, that is interesting. Maybe he's Bertel Ullman. Maybe he's listening and will sort of tell us whether he thinks it. But maybe we should become market makers in the Class, <laughs> class Struggle. You can sort of short, go short or long on Class Struggle. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Lord Adonis, who recently resigned as the head of the government's infrastructure commission, both over Brexit, but also over the handling of transport issues. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Ed, great to be with you. Um, So you recently called for Transport Secretary Chris Grelling to resign over the government's handling of the early termination of Stagecoach's East Coast Rail franchise, which you said, and I quote, looks set to be the worst transport scandal since the collapse of rail track in 2001. Can you explain why why you thought, felt so strongly about this? What, what Chris Grayling has essentially done is to issue a massive blank cheque to two of the richest companies in, in the country, Stagecoach and Virgin. They overbid for the East Coast Rail franchise and uh, they had two billion, two billion worth of payments that they were due to make to the government between 2020 and 2023. And faced with those, uh, they said they'd rather uh, get out as they possibly could. And Chris Grayling has agreed to it. And the reason he's agreed to it is, uh, isn't just because he wanted to sign a cheque for a large sum, but he wasn't prepared to agree to the alternative, which was to threaten to set up a public company if they wouldn't fulfil their contract, because, of course, someone's got to run the trains. And if he had done that, my own view is he could have called their bluff, because I was in exactly the same position 
under the last Labour government, uh, when you and I were ministers in 2009, when National Express, another very um, uh, uh, rich transport company, came to me and said that they uh, uh, were making a loss on exactly the same line, the East Coast main line from London to Edinburgh. And um, would I agree to, as they put it, renegotiate the contract? And they said two things to me, which uh, resonate deeply uh, with the contemporary situation. The first was that the whole uh, industry, they said, was going belly up because of um, of a decline in traffic and uh, a weakening economy. And I said to that that to them, well, that may or may not be the case, but the one thing that would absolutely ensure that the whole of the current rail franchising system collapses is, is if I work on that assumption. So I'm not I'm not agreeing to renegotiate. But then they said to me very belligerently, but you can't. Um, uh, run a railway company, he said, because you ha- the trains have got to, to, to be run and we're the only people who can do it. And I remember the chief executive coming into my office and saying that, and I said to him, uh, Richard, I'm afraid you don't understand me. Since the age of five, the one thing I've really wanted to do in life is to run a train company. <laughs> and uh, that's what I did. And I recruited two outstandingly successful rail managers who set up East Coast, a state company, and at a few weeks' notice, we'd taken over all of the services. I think most passengers thought that the services in the public company were better. Certainly, there were much better fare deals as well, so, so they liked that. I, I used it to Doncaster, and I can vouch for that. And it was great. And uh, what I wanted to see happen, because, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a social democratic pragmatist, what I wanted to see happen was that public company could then bid for other contracts so that you then had a level playing field between public and private operators, and then you see who offers the best deal to the public, which is surely what we're in this business for, public services for the public. But, of course, what the Tories did after 2010 was as soon as they could, they abolished the um, the East Coast public company. They refused to allow it to bid for other contracts. And, of course, uh, the irony is uh, they abolished it so they could give the East Coast franchise to, wait for it, Stagecoach and Virgin. And that's why we're in this mess. And let me just ask you this question, Andrew. Do, do we know that there seems some dispute about this? Do we know that that Chris Grayling is foregoing this money, this two billion quid? He's definitely foregoing the premium payments due between 2020 and 2023, right. which total two billion. We know that because he's cancelled the contracts. Right. So we absolutely know that. What we don't know is what he may be able to salvage in a new contract, because what he's done in uh, a big smoke and mirrors operation is to say that he's replacing the existing contract with what he's calling a new form of public-private partnership, except there's no public in it at all. It's just basically a new contract. He says it's going to bring together the track and the trains. I mean, there's a whole load of waffle in there about what it's going to do. But what it effectively amounts to is a new contract. And, of course, people will bid for that contract anew. And nobody in the industry believes that anyone will bid remotely close to two billion for the um, for operating that contract between 2020 and 2023. So the difference between those two figures will be the scale of the bailout, which I think will be several hundred millions, the bailout. I see. You know, but it could be higher. But the point about this, though, Ed, which is crucial, is that the total bill to the taxpayer could be billions because the deal that he offers to Stagecoach and Virgin on the East Coast, he will have to offer to every other train company in the country... Indeed, he'll have to offer it to Stagecoach because the next three contracts which are coming down the track are are um, uh, Stagecoach itself is shortlisted for. Now, when I uh, took the contract away from National Express, rather they defaulted in 2009, I also banned them from bidding on the grounds that they were not a reliable partner for the state. 
Um, and that was a huge disincentive to any other train companies from following suit because they knew not only did I now have a, a state company that could take over the operations, but they'd be banned from any more business with the state. Whereas what Chris Grayling has done is not only to bail out Stagecoach, but to put them on the shortlist for the next three contracts, which I think, frankly, is outrageous. And, and just to understand this, and just for the sake of clarity, when you took over East Coast, as has been your aspiration since the age of five, um, if not necessarily for East Coast, you also... F- went the you had to forego the the money that the state would have got but your argument is that you you sort of took some decisive action against the companies that had defaulted is that, am i right is that right oh yes yeah it's of course it's true that we lost the uh what were called the premium payments which are the additional payments that um that uh, national express were due to pay though i still got a, a lot back because the state company was very successful however there are two crucial aspects to this the first is that uh, Network Rail, sorry, um, National Express, the, the uh, private company, didn't make any gain at all beyond that because they weren't allowed to bid for any future contracts. Right. That's cr- crucial point number one. Crucial point number two is that no one else defaulted because they knew that if they defaulted, uh, the business would be nationalised and they'd be banned from any future contracts. Now, in the context of the post-2008 recession, uh, that was um, I held the line remarkably successfully, you know, and it was very tough action by that Labour government that did it because what I was being told, including by some of my officials at the time, was that the whole franchising system was on the verge of collapse because all the companies had overbid for their contracts. Indeed, the great irony is I was told that the next company that would be wanting a handout if I gave one to National Express was going to be Stagecoach which was in a very tough situation with one of its franchises at the time. But but after I'd nationalised the East Coast franchise and banned National Express from bidding again, no one else defaulted. And let me ask you, let me ask you this question, Andrew. Sorry to interrupt. What is your experience then of having run East Coast in the public sector? Because in a way, that was quite, an, uh, as you implied, a sort of quite a big experiment. What do you think the verdict is on that experiment? I think it was a hugely successful experiment. And the verdict I, uh, I draw is that successful public companies should be able to bid alongside private companies. What I think should have happened after 2010 is that the East Coast company that was, it was extremely successful, had very talented managers, also managers very committed to public service, which is part of the reason why they agreed to run those companies at a fraction of the salaries of the private train operators, if they'd been allowed to bid for future contracts, my view is that now, in 2017, probably half of the rail services in the country would be run by public companies and half by privates, and we'd be getting a much better quality of service, a much better deal for the passenger, and probably the taxpayer too. Just to pick you up on one thing, and something I mentioned in our introduction, there is, of course, a huge irony here, which is that I think I'm right in saying that 75% of our rail franchises have some kind of state involvement. They're just foreign firms. That's completely right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got the Dutch, you've got the French, you've got the Germans. Uh, Exactly right. And of course, um, uh, the Chinese told me that they build HS2 completely. So, you know, there's no shortage of foreign governments that are perfectly happy to pitch into what they see as a very lucrative British train market. Now, just sort of of going to the bigger picture for a second, which, which you've taken us to, the thing that we're trying to get our heads around is this, which is when we look at the figures, our rail... Uh, has one of the highest subsidies in Europe alongside some of the highest prices in Europe. So it looks like it's not going very well. Is that right? And and what do you attribute that to? Well, we have 
um, uh, one of the most expensive systems to maintain in in the world. I mean, the, particularly the commuter routes coming into London are incredibly expensive to maintain. They're some of the most intensively used pieces of rail. Indeed, you know, Waterloo is uh, the second busiest railway station in the world. In the world, I think only Delhi is 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 busier. And the tracks on the main lines coming into London are incredibly intensively used and very, very expensive to maintain, not least because this is very old infrastructure. Most of this infrastructure was built in the 1840s and the 1850s. So it is true that our costs are higher. Now, there is a big debate in the rail industry about whether our costs are excessively high because our costs are much higher than other European countries. And uh, it, they're particularly high when it comes to track renewal and replacement. You know, um, building new track in England and, and replacing it is incredibly expensive. Now, part of the argument which there is out there about that is because over the last generation we lost so much of our engineering expertise not least with the breakup of british rail when it was privatized in the 1990s that that drove up costs and i think that's true because if you look at the history of cost escalation in in uh, in uk railways the massive cost escalation came with privatization because what happened was uh, i i mean i think there's a good case for having competition in railways you know regulated competition but the huge huge mistake of the ideological privatization of the 1990s was that british rail was banned from bidding for franchises banned from bidding and dismantled as a com- as a company and as a result a, a whole generation of of engineering expertise was lost and most people see uh, the big escalation in costs as dating back to that time let me go to a slightly wider argument uh, andrew which is those who say that it would be better for coordination ticketing uh sort of the the taxpayer the um rail passenger not to have every service in public hands but to have the basically the main intercity services you could imagine a sort of a a kind of different system for the more local lines but but the, the the benefits you get for coordination of coordination are sort of outweigh the the kind of what some people would see as the questionable benefits of competition with all of the problems that you've exposed in relation to the east coasting how do you respond to that i uh, want to see what is the best deal for the passengers and and the taxpayers and it certainly lies in having uh, public operators who can compete fairly now whether those public operators would then in a in a fair competition win all of the intercity contracts i don't know it's quite telling that in um in france and germany where they also have competition uh for for what are essentially franchises sncf and deutsche bahn the two state companies they run the intercity services but there is there are some other operators that run local services so that might well be the result i wouldn't want to preordain it before what i would want to do though is to have some very strong public operators and where they offer uh, the best deal, we go with them. Now, if you were starting on the East Coast, that is the um, the second uh, most important intercity line in the country. The most important is the West Coast main line that links London, Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool, which is even busier. And I think you would quite, I, I'd be surprised if you didn't end up with state operators taking on both of those lines. So you'd have the core of the intercity network uh, in the hands of public operators and having them integrated. I think there's a lot to be said for that because they're, exceptionally busy and the issues of coordination on those lines are exceptionally difficult so uh, i suspect we're not far apart actually the only 
only thing I slightly balk at as somebody who wants to see the best deal is if you announced in advance you were gifting these lines to a public company, then you don't give them uh, much incentive to be efficient and improve the quality of service. So I quite like the idea of keeping them on their toes by saying that once every 10 years or so, you will, you know, you'll test the market. And if somebody can come along and credibly offer not just a somewhat better deal, because there's a disruption cost from changing operator, but a very much better deal, then you'd be prepared to look at it. Okay. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I can vouch for the fact that you are a massive train enthusiast. I think you took you went on a big, long, long train journey as Transport Secretary all around the country, I, didn't you? I did that, and I did it on a second-class rover, which cost, from memory, £300. Well, that's quite And good. the first thing that the train companies did, because I'd advertised it so widely, was that they doubled the price. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe we should um, nationalise the rovers too. That tells you a lot. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> All the best. Bye. We're joined now by Anton Volk, who uh, was CEO of Abelio, which is the British version of the Dutch Railway, if I can put it that way. He was also on the board of the Dutch Railway, which is publicly owned. Uh, Mr. Volk, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, nice to be there. Uh, just tell us, first of all, something about the Dutch system and the way that it works, in your view, whether it's a good system. Yes, I, I think the Dutch system works. And the first thing is it's difficult to compare different rail systems to each other because they all have their own their, their own challenges and their own issues. And I think that's what I learned in the past. The Dutch system is that there is NS is a, is a separate company. It's a company which is owned by the Dutch government, but it's a separate company with its own balance sheet. It's not subsidized, and uh, it is operating what is called in the Netherlands the core network, which is the, the big network between the the, 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 the the core network between the big cities in the Netherlands. And NS is operating that core network, and the government decided a long time ago, in the time when privatization was on, that it was not good to split the core network, to keep it as one big network, and therefore it's, it's not suitable for franchising because it's such a big network, would be such a big franchise, and it would be simply one operator only. So the, the government didn't want to split it. They kept it intact, and they had one operator, which was in this case NS as a state-owned operator. Network is Owned by, is operated by ProRail, which is just a sort of network rail. It's comparable to it. ProRail is also owned by the government, and ProRail is subsidized by the government, so the government invests in the rail infrastructure. On the borders of the network, uh, which are the likely run uh, uh, lines, there has taken some privatization taken place, which has worked. Also, well, because there you, uh, you were able to, by doing that and by delegating that to regions, there was a possibility to integrate different modes of transport, which is one of the issues which I think the UK is struggling with. Uh, so, you could integrate bus and train as an example. And so, you could have one company was doing both train service and a number of bus services, and they could do it efficiently and with, high, with a high service grade. So that is uh, that is the way the system works in the Netherlands properly. And and just on the core system that is in public ownership, obviously mm -hmm. Britain went down a different road, which was private franchising. Mm -hmm. 
What are your reflections on whether the public sector, because you, you, you've obviously got a business background, whether the public sector can do this efficiently? Do you think that's it's worked in the Netherlands? I, I think it worked in the Netherlands because NS is not run as a public company, but it's run basically as a private company in public ownership. That's the difference. So, see, if you look to, I come to my personal view on this, I think governments, because of the big economic and social effects of the railways, in my view, is responsible for the railways. I mean, at the end, governments, and that, that's of course is a political vision, but if, if you say government is responsible for a railway system because the economic and social effects are so big of it, and you don't leave that to the private sector, and again, that's a vision which you should have or not, then still it is the question how you run uh, railways most efficiently. And that's, that's, the, that's the question you can pose then. How can you do most efficiently? And that depends, of course, on the sort of railways and the sort of problems you have, the sort of challenges you have for railways. As an example, when it's very difficult to do franchising, when it is very uncertain uh, what outcomes are, as an example, the example of the Netherlands is the high-speed line which the Dutch government thought they should do in competition, in franchising. Uh, and the high-speed line, well, that's comparable to the Dutch part of the high-speed line. It's, it's comparable to an intercity line in the UK, of course. If they tried to do that, well, nobody knew exactly uh, what the outcome was because it was not known how many passengers would be there and therefore it started to be a very difficult process because then, then government lost, lost basically lost control over the process because nobody, uh, there were complete different bits, complete different philosophies and, and at the end uh, NS won the competition but it didn't work out so they had to be bailed out and you see that sort of thing was happening in the UK. Well, I was going to say then, when you look at the UK system, and obviously when we look at the figures, it looks like we are a quite a well-subsidized system, but also quite a high-priced system. What, what mm. do you think? What, what do you think are the problems in the franchise system that we should be fixing? Well, I, th- I think as an example on, on, on franchise like East Coast, the risks are so high for franchisees that either. And, and you cannot afford as a government to let franchisee go bust every time when you can do it, but politically that's not acceptable. So you have to weigh those things. And there is a very sophisticated system in the UK of of uh, of uh, uh, support and you know, that you that you top off uh, income and, and support. So, so you, you create a very sophisticated system. In certain cases, it works fine. I, th- I think the. Northern Rail, which Abelio won and Abelio has operated, I think we have added a lot of value to both the taxpayer and the uh, and the passengers. We improved the system. We worked on on a long time. But if you if you have very high risk franchises or you have um, you have high investment franchises with new trains and everything, it's, it's I, I don't know if the current system is is working properly in the UK. So would you then, and I know this is a personal view I'm asking about, you would would be supportive, would you, of a more publicly owned system in the UK, at least for those kind of high-risk areas? Well, I I can imagine that there is more, that that, that, that the government, I'm trying, not trying to to leap to something, I think the UK government has to do that. But but I I can imagine that when, that's too high-risk, systems, too high risk 
franchises do not work. And I can imagine that the government has to find other ways. I think franchising is a means, just like public-private partnerships are means to an end. And that means should they should bring benefits at the end, which are financial and economic benefits. And if it doesn't do that, as apparently this month in East Coast, it starts to be difficult again for the third time, then you have to think about how to solve that. Mr. Volk, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, I hope I helped. Listening to that interview, we've got Nicole Badstuber, who is a transport policy researcher at University College London. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You listened to Androdonis talking about the situation with the East Coast franchise. Do you think that highlights some of the flaws in the current system? Yeah, I think Andrew summarised them pretty well. I mean, one of the big ones he touched on there was the risk um, and how ultimately the risk is still held in the public sector because the government can't really allow the railways to fail so that a private operator always has the option to just leave. Um, He also highlighted the sort of problems with the franchise contracts, which is that often the lowest bid is just accepted um, and the operators put the premiums at the back end of the franchise. So a franchise is five to ten years and they'll say, oh, well, we've got some teething problems at the beginning, but we'll pay you higher premiums at the end. And then they realise, oh, maybe we overbid for this contract, so we're just going to leave. And then the government doesn't really have the option to just let it fail. Did they take profit out in the meantime? Yes. Right. I mean, one of the big problems as well is that you actually don't have that many bidders at the moment. Um, as as this is sort of going on in the last two decades, there's been fewer and fewer um, bidders for the contracts because they have been more tightly regulated and the profit margins are lower. Um, and so this idea that competition will provide better services for the passenger and cheaper services hasn't really materialised because there is no competition. We were talking earlier about the way that we ended up with a system was because of ideological privatization. So how how has it developed differently in different countries? How does our system compare to other European countries? Well, the UK is unique in having gone through this privatization experiment um, for the railways. Um, and what it set up is this sort of tripartite setup, um, just to give the listeners an overview. So you have the train operating companies, which are the sort of brands you'll be familiar with, and they run the services, but they don't own the trains and they don't maintain the track. The trains are um, owned by um, companies called Roscoe's, rolling stock operating companies. Um, rolling stock is what the sector calls trains and carriages. And so they own them and they lease them out to these train operating companies. And then we have Network Rail, which is in charge of the infrastructure. This creates quite a fragmented um, setup. Um, Most other countries have broadly maintained the sort of national railways that they had. Um, There has been some EU law which has um, required uh, separation, uh, or at least in divisions or in units within an umbrella company, um, to separate track and operations. But broadly, all these companies do exist, so Deutsche Bahn and all of the equivalent countries. And as I believe you've mentioned, they also operate a lot of our railways here. I think one big argument that the advocates for privatisation use, or that ATOC, which is the association of these train operators, uses, is looking at passenger numbers and that they have doubled since their privatisation since the early 1990s. Um, I think what this sort of 
decontextualized figure is, is that it doesn't take into account that actually there's been a lot wider drivers to this change. And that is this employment centralization in London, um, the fact that two thirds of that growth comes from the commuter belt in London um, and land use planning. So the fact that employment is in one area and all the residential areas somewhere else. So yeah, we can figure it out some other way, but I don't think the doubling is to be attributed to the private companies. And now you've written uh, advocating uh, as far back as 2015 that you think there is a way to take Britain's railways back into the public sector without cost uh, as franchises expire. Perhaps you can just explain your position and why you're advocating for that. Um, so basically the government could at a very low cost take back the franchises as they expire. So as I mentioned, at the moment you have these franchises, which basically are sort of regional monopolies as the country's been cut up, the railway's been cut up into little chunks, and they've been put out to tender. Um, these contracts will expire, there's sort of a schedule of when they will expire, and as they expire, the government could choose not to put them out for tender again. You would save money because that entire process of putting it out to tender and checking the bids and also reimbursing each of the companies for making that bid would fall away. Um, you have the example of how having the government run the railway um, has worked, as um, Andrew outlined, with the East Coast Railway. Um, and you could also do something similar with these Roscoe's, so these train leasing companies. Um, actually, most of the new trains have been purchased directly by the government. So this has already been done with Thameslink and Crossrail. Um, and in the next few years, 75% of all the new trains will have been bought directly by the government. So there is precedent there and there is a clear um, path where how this could be achieved without them having to buy out all of the companies as well as waiting for these franchises to expire, they could, um, as the companies fail to, I guess, um, meet their commitments, um, decide to claw it back. So something like Southern or East Coast, the government could have chosen to take it back. And what do you think the advantages would be of having that system where you have a public operator of all of these major intercity networks, as opposed to a competitive model whereby the public sector and the private sector can 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 bid which was sort of what Andrew was mm. advocating although he kind of was verging on the first but, but but also kind of setting his stall by the second I mean I I guess my main argument for why it should be in the public sector um I guess is most is best framed by this question of why should we be providing transport? Why should we be providing rail transport? And it's not to be making profit. It's actually to achieve wider social policy aims. Um, so whether that's um, promoting social mobility or better access to education, to support um, health services by actually enabling people to access them. And so transport is only a means to an end. It's never, and it never should have been a policy objective in itself. And so the current system is set up to just provide more and more transport without consideration of whether that transport is needed or addresses the objective of wider social policy. And so the only person that, or the only institution that I can identify that is best placed to make that, have that holistic view um, and has that breadth of responsibility and therefore can assess the value of making the decision to subsidize transport in certain areas or certain transport, for instance, nighttime transport, is the government because they have other means and mechanisms by which they can um, you, I guess, capture that value that has been created elsewhere in society or the economy. And so the current structure that we have, which is neither private or 
public um, is has these incentives where it's just to drive more and more transport or more and more profit. It doesn't capture those social returns um, and therefore I think the main argument would be that that is the reason. So these social returns, capturing them and seeing transport as a means of achieving wider policy is why it should be run by the public. And just to get a bit more technical for a second, there's this concept, isn't there, the economists have of natural monopolies. Um, just explain to people what a natural monopoly is and, and sort of whether, whether it, in your view, applies in this, in this case. But some people say, well, there's lots of good benefits of competition. I think one of the issues I've got is once the franchise is awarded, and we've already heard about some of the problems of that awarding, there isn't really much competition. You know, you're on a virgin train, uh, you've got no choice. It's their sandwiches or no sandwiches, or their trains or no trains. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the railway is an example of competition for the market rather than competition in the market. So I think on an everyday basis, there's competition in the market, for instance, what supermarket you go to. Um, and you as a consumer are well informed about what the price at Tesco's is for that pint of milk or elsewhere. And so you can make an informed decision because you have quite a lot of data of how much things cost there and maybe you get better products there or whatever. But you have some sort of background and basis of information on which you can judge your choice. With something like transport or long distance travel, you don't really have that frequent everyday experience. So you're not really that informed. Um, the other big problem with um, something like the railway is, is that there's huge infrastructure costs and it doesn't would never make any sense to replicate multiple lines going to the same place so that you can have multiple railway companies running the same services and then competing. So the only way that you can have competition within this sector is competition for the market. Um, and as I said, the sort of way that the franchisees try and get around that is by low bidding um, and then backing out when the premiums are too high. So, yeah, these really high sunk costs are the big problem. And, and also you have, just explain what high sunk costs, sorry, are. Um, well, these high infrastructure costs, yeah. basically. And, and and you've also got this problem, don't you, when you want to buy a ticket from one place to another, when it's different operators on the network, you end up, it's particularly then you end up paying over the odds or it's very hard to get the best price, isn't it? Yes. So, I mean, the model that's been adopted, so uh, maybe to outline, there are two types of tickets that you can get. There are regulated and unregulated tickets. Um, about two thirds of the tickets are unregulated and one third is regulated. Um, so these regulated tickets, this, the idea behind regulating these ticket prices was that these would be sort of commuter-based travel distances, um, and the majority of them are about half of the people who buy a regulated ticket are season ticket holders, and most people then um, day every any day returns or um, discounted returns. So that's sort of, I guess, your commuter belt ticket. And the idea behind them being regulated was to... Um, cut the escalation that could happen in the price. However, you still have these two thirds which are un unregulated and those are usually larger distance um, tickets. Um, and the model that the companies have adopted is sort of, I guess you'll be familiar with it from the air airways industry where you have demand-based pricing. Railways have less of this huge spike in peak and peak of peak travel to London um, and that these peaks are really the most So expensive. some of them are involved in the geography of, of yeah. London and where the economy is. One thing that people who are critics of the idea of public ownership will raise, and obviously this dates to a time which 
Jeff and I can remember better than you uh, is the sort of days of British Rail, Jeff in particular. Uh, <laughs> um, no, Ed remembers the uh, days of uh, Dr. Beach. Yeah, exactly. Closing uh, down the local good, lines. I was, I was a mate of his. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the, what I said, the curly cheese sandwiches. Now, yeah. I don't think much of virgin sandwiches, as I said already, but, but you know, People don't remember that sort of nationalised British Rail as being these halcyon days. It's not a golden age. Um, How do you avoid a sort of unresponsive publicly owned system? What's the examples from elsewhere, from around the world? Can you avoid that? Is is it about the way you would structure public ownership? Is it about having a certain service for the intercity and then a different one for other local services? How would you go about that? I mean, I guess something I would generally be advocating for is to split the franchises between sort of metro, regional, commuter-based services and longer-distance services. I think generally that makes a lot of sense. You can see success stories of that with the London Overground and the actual drive to create more of a London overground by taking over more of the commuter belt in London. Um, What this also does would allow maybe regional governments to be in charge of um, franchising out the services. Um, They could then tie that in better with the bus networks or even if there is a metro network in that city. Um, And I think that entire governance structure would lend itself much better to providing transport that local people would need. So to be clear about this, the intercity would be one integrated service for the long distance. Maybe intercity is the wrong way of describing it. Yeah. Longer distance services will be one integrated public service, and then regional governments, mayors, and so on would make decisions a bit like Transport for London about those services. Yeah, I think that would be a model that would work well, and you can see sort of examples of how it has worked well. TFL is quite a success yes. story. Just say a bit about that. Um, I guess so TFL, I mean, the most comparable one there is London Overground. So London Overground was uh, is a patchwork of railway lines that um, were all around London. Some of them were disused, some of them were underused. Um, in advance for the London Olympics, the decision was made to transform this with over a billion pounds into an orbital network. So most of the metro lines, most of the underground lines here in London are sort of what we call radial lines. So they go from out to in. Um, and there's not really much of a connector around. So this orbital service, you have it with a circle line, but that's only around zone one. And the idea was to recreate that in a zone two, zone three area. Um, that's been hugely successful. Passenger numbers on the services have quintupled since it was opened up. Um, it now runs very reliable services um, across across all of the different branches that it has. Um, but important to point out is that it is actually operated by a private company under what is called a concession contract. So the difference between what we call a franchise and a concession contract is who holds the risk. In a franchise contract, basically the idea is that the Department for Transport says, here's a chunk of railway. How much are you willing to pay me to run this railway for five years? Um, you'd be expected to estimate what the passenger numbers were, how much you would get from income. That's what happens at the moment. Yeah, that's what happens elsewhere. And it doesn't really work, basically. It doesn't really work because basically as soon as um, their income is lower than what they expected, they back out. You sort of privatise the gains and socialise the losses, basically. Yeah, basically. So, yeah, it's a, they win if they yeah. win and you, they, we yeah. lose if they lose. Yeah, so um, that doesn't really work so well. So the TFL model is this concession model. They say, we want you to run so and so many trains for such a period of time um, because we're expecting demand to be this and we're going to take on the revenue risk. So we're going to collect the revenue and just pay you. So it's a bit like having an employee versus having someone who's independently employed. 
Um, yeah, and so those are the two models. I get it, but in a way, the risk seems like it's always on the government if the franchisees oh, yes. are going to be yes. backing out. Well, yes. I mean, I guess that's sort of the point I was trying to make yeah. right at the beginning was because it's too big to fail, because the government can't actually let the services not run, the government has to pick up the pieces even if they do back out. And, yeah. and, and sort of I'm in danger of taking us right into the weeds here. Um, but some people, including I think one of your colleagues at London uh, Reconnection, uh, makes the case that actually the problem isn't the private sector here, or, or I don't want to caricature it, but the, the problem may not be the private sector. It may just be the the quality of franchising. But you don't sort of buy that argument, really, do you? you think for these long distance networks, public the public option with the coordination all that is better? Well, I mean, I think the governance structure is complete that we have at the moment is completely flawed. I think you could have had a better system if you had better contracts. But I think if we go back to my point earlier, which was about social returns and social policy objectives, I think if you acknowledge that transport is a means to achieving those policy objectives, the only place that it should be managed from is the public sector. Final question podcast is called reasons to be cheerful uh you you work in day, day in day out in this uh area do you think if we were to have this podcast in 10 years time on episode 500 and something or other uh do you think we'll end up with a publicly owned long distance rail network oh well i hope so i mean I it would think- make you more cheerful if we had it yeah, and I think sort of the the moves to devolution, I know that's sort of halted a bit since the last election, but the moves to devolution and setting up TFL equivalents, so Transport for Greater Manchester, for instance, you can see that there is the appetite there to take over some of the local railway services into regional government or at least regional government control. And I think that would really improve things. I mean, I think one thing that often happens is you have these big projects like HS2. I mean, I have my views on that, but I think a lot of local projects could actually really transform people's life. Better bus systems, better local rail. Um, and they actually don't require huge um, investment. And we should definitely talk about bus services in the in another episode <laughs> because, you know, trains are one thing, but actually, you know, buses are much too little talked about in terms of yep. the, the services that they provide. And they can really transform people's lives. Okay, Nicole, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. I want to give a plug to uh, your podcast, On Our Line. It's produced by London Reconnections. If you want to know more about transport, uh, hear more from Nicole about her reflections on transport issues, uh, you should tune in. Thank you very much for having me. So what did you make of all that? I found it very interesting. On the face of it, there's not a lot to be cheerful about in as much as we're stuck with this franchise system. And it I mean, I suppose I should have known this, but it was mind-blowing to me that we've got a system where publicly owned companies aren't allowed to compete yeah. for those franchises. And that, that seems to me like it would be a very It's a definition good fix. of a sort of non-level playing field. Yeah, very much so. But um in terms of being cheerful, I don't know if you saw on Twitter this week, but people really went for it on the day that the rail fares yeah. went up. There was yeah. a lot of um, social media activity and people campaigning. And it, it feels as if there's a head of steam, right? <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I just got the glare from a headline. No, it's okay. It was a good pun. <laughs> it, it was unintentional. It was a nice, but it was it, a nice it, little And, and, and yeah. with nationalisation... Tickle my fancy. ...being such an unfashionable words it's interesting that the public have a will for it um in respect of the railways yeah i mean we had this email which i wanted to mention from from jess ennis i don't think it's that uh, the jess ennis um 
subject the not-so-great rail debate. I'm on the London commuter belt and pay well over £400 a month, take a 45-minute journey, which I rarely get a seat. And given how crowded these trains are, I'm clearly not the only one who's being overcharged to stand up, exclamation mark. Jeremy Corbyn too. I could almost un- or sit down in his case. Uh, I could almost understand the price hikes if they were improving efficiency, reducing delays, investing in new trains, or laying on more services to reduce crowding. But I've yet to see any evidence of improvements in any shape or form. It feels like a vacuum into which I place not much off a third of my monthly pay. I think that is quite sort of you know uh, typical. And actually, I-, I think there is a way. And I think you you, you sort of saw it listening to a combination of Nicole and, and Andrew. Of and also um, Anton, that you could imagine a system where there's a sort of long distance core which is in public hands, and and then you've got this, but but it's not like a going back to simply a centralised British Rail because you've also got this you know devolved system for lots of local services where you've got regional mayors and so on making their decisions about how they want to shape their services, how they want to tie it in with bus services, a bit like TfL has done on the underground, as Nicole has said. So, And I think I think you're completely right. I think the sort of winds of change are sort of blowing through this, this area. And those who want to defend the current system feel pretty on the defensive, I would say. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. So that's a reason to be cheerful. And it is important. And, and for those people, you know, lots of people will say, or some people will say, look, you know, lots of people don't travel on trains. Uh, there's other transport areas we need to talk about. That's that's definitely true. But I think for lots and lots of people, it's a really frustrating experience. And I think that there is a lot to learn about how we can do it better. Change is coming down the track. Very good. <laughs> not as good as the head Let's, of steam. <laughs> well, not as good as the head of steam. Let's end the epic rail fail. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you've got comments on what you've heard on today's show or suggestions for future podcast episodes, then email us at reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful. Is that right? 
It is right. You could, you. I'm uh, trying to feel redundant. No, no, you're certainly not redundant. Uh, the um, We've had lots and lots of emails in a sign of our increasing popularity. Uh, <laughs> or maybe people had a lot of time on their hands over Christmas. Um, and so we've got kind of a lot to get through. I wanted to go back to episode 12 because Chris Rhodes wanted to go back to episode 12. He wrote this. Hello, Ed and Jeff. In episode 12, Ed referred to the justification for progressive taxation being that, quote, those with the broadest shoulders should bear the greatest burden. What do you think of Harjun Chang's suggestion? Harjun Chang is a, a, an author that the concept that tax is a burden, which therefore by definition needs to be minimised, is itself a myth perpetuated by using such language such as burden to refer to tax. In other contexts, we don't necessarily refer to transactions as burdens when we perceive that what we receive in exchange is good value. I think that is a fair point, Chris. I mean, that phrase i use is a kind of well-worn phrase yeah. about those with the greatest shoulders should wear the greatest burden but i think look, part of the problem we've got in our society is that tax is only seen as a burden not as a price you pay for a good society um or, or, or so what you pay for a good society so i think he's sort of hands up it's a great point maybe i'll go great. away and read some what was he called harjun chang Har-Jun i think Chang. 21 things you didn't know about capitalism i'll put it on my reading list We've got a birthday coming up in April, if you're thinking... Oh, it's, it's, people always sound very difficult cal- to buy for. It's in the calendar. Okay. Uh, this comes from Daniel, who says, I always learn something from your podcast and almost always something applicable to my own life crops up. It says, loneliness is an issue that doesn't garner the attention it desperately needs. I'm only 20, um, but that feeling has come to define much of my experience in 2017. It tells us a lot about his own story. Um and then says, uh, I want to thank you for highlighting this problem on your recent episode, especially at this time of year. Rachel Reeves wrote a brilliant article recently saying that this problem should be added to Beveridge's five giant evils, which I wholly endorse. It's often the root of many far-reaching, far worse lingering problems and outcomes. It's important people can talk about their experiences without guilt, shame or filter, and even more important that others are able to empathise with these problems and help people to better themselves. Do you know what the five giant evils are? Jeff. Uh, gluttony. No. Nope. Is gluttony not one of want, them? Want, disease. Avarice. Want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. And you just knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a good email. And actually, there was a lot of response to what we said about loneliness on the podcast and also Sarah Millican's great join-in campaign uh, on Christmas Day and, mm. and, and beyond. And I think lots and lots of people appreciating that. Another one that relates to the Christmas episode, I can hardly believe this one. It comes from Lydia. Merry Christmas to Ed and Jeff. I was interested to hear in your Christmas episode that Joel's present to you consisted of a framed photo of David Cameron's infamous tweet during the 2015 general election. This is the one about its chaos with Ed Miliband or competent and stable government with David Cameron. Um, I don't know if Joel was aware of this when he presented it to you or whether it was his intention, but he's actually given you something in common with Mr. Cameron. As a little bird has told me, Mr. Cameron, also in capital letters, has a framed copy of the exact same tweet on his own wall. No. I can't. No. I mean, that is a story if that's true. Text and him. And like you, he apparently... Send him a text and ask and, him. And like you, he apparently has put it in pride of place over his mantelpiece. He's also apparently been rather pleased to sign copies of the tweet for both friend and foe, a couple of which were auctioned off for pretty high prices at Conservative Party fundraisers. Ed's got his head in his hands here. You can't believe it. I mean... I notice you're ignoring my suggestion that you text him and find out. Yeah. Well, I don't have his number. But well, uh, there we go. Uh, but there you go. I mean, because somebody who's listening, uh, maybe in the journalistic community, can, can tell us whether this is... Let, let's do some ferreting and find out whether this is true. That would be wonderful if it's true. Well, wonderful is one way of putting it. Uh... <laughs> uh 
Right. What's next? Uh, next one is from Ben Harwood, who says, Dear Chuckle Brother 1 and Chuckle Brother 2. Oh. Uh, brackets the more introverted one. Uh, Chuckle Brother 2. To me. To you. You don't know your Chuckle Brothers, do you? No. no. Um, I thought I'd let you know that I'm on a mission com- to convert everyone I know to the world of the Reasons to be Cheerful pod. RTBC. Yeah. As with everything in life, there have been some successes and some failures. I've listed them out in order of success below. Fiancé, fully converted, bought us tickets to see a London live show for Christmas, best present by far. Dad, still not totally forgiven, Ed, for 2015, says that he prefers Pod Save America. I think you prefer that, don't you? <laughs> That's sort of. Ed's a super fan. He couldn't get tickets, but he's going to yeah. go and stand outside the stage exactly. door. Um, work colleague one, looked sceptical, said he'd give it a try. Sounded unconvinced. Work colleague two, self-declared as a Tory, which came as a shock. We're obviously not speaking now. No, no, but we've got good Tory listeners. Yeah. So, you know. We're crossing the divide. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Mum, still no interest in podcasts in general. It's not personal. I see potential for growth with the mum, though. Yep, definitely. It's not a no, is it? No, definitely. Sister, who is Ed Miliband? Sorry, you know Ed Miliband. Looks a bit like Michael Portillo. I don't think this email's great for my (laughs) self-esteem on balance, actually. Um, Ben finishes with, I'll keep trying and let you know how I get on. Um, Once you convert more than five people, do you win a T-shirt? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, We've got another... We've got another plus one. Uh, this is from Rose uh, Fletcher. This was the first plus one we had. I'm a teacher and I recommended listening to Reasons to be Cheerful to my year 11 class. As part of our study of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, one of them piped up with universal ba- basic income would have helped Bob Cratchit. The rest had no idea what UBI was. I recommended the podcast to them. Several several actually wrote the name down. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? Good old Rose Fletcher from Carl Shulton. Firstly, how old is year 11? Because I still work in the old, old system... 15, 16. 15. Mm. So, you know, we, we could be making inroads with the youth demographic. Definitely. Secondly, this could be the first step to seeing reasons to be cheerful put onto the national curriculum. <laughs> now, there is a good idea. <laughs> Required <laughs> listening for all pupils. Definitely. I think that, that's a good marketing idea. <laughs> so, um, and then, uh, as well as the plus one, and if you do have a plus one, we'd love to hear about it. If you found somebody that you've introduced the podcast to, we should get a secret handshake or something. Yeah. Are you ever in the Dennis the Menace fan club? You weren't, were you? I can tell by the face. No. There was obviously some Class Marxist, struggle some Marxist equivalent of the Beano yeah, that you were allowed to exactly. read. But there were, there were Dennis very, the Nice. <laughs> there were various um, passwords and things that you, you would have for being. So may, maybe a secret handshake, uh, a password for other listeners. I'm, I'm not sure. So, so there's that. We'd love to hear about your plus ones. And also we were asking... Uh, for ideas of places we, we should come and uh, do They've live They've been coming in thick and fast, haven't yeah, they? We've got plenty so far. Um, Doncaster, definitely. which is your, your constituency, yeah, Doncaster North. Manchester, yep. which is uh, where I was born. And also your wife, Justine. We exactly. were born in the same hospital. Hmm. Um, Almost not, exactly the same year. <laughs> is, she, is she like you? Is she uh, a flower power child of the 60s? Or she is was she 1970. Like me? Oh, so she's borderline millennial. So like she's me, very then. close to you in yes, age. Yeah. yeah. Um, Manchester, Cheltenham, uh, Chester, Brighton, Hurst Pier Point. West Sussex. Aha. Leeds. And here's an exciting one. Ibiza. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds good, doesn't it? Didn't you go wild in Ibiza I after did. you stood down as leader? I did. Yeah, we could revisit my old haunts. Stripped to the waist, yeah. blowing well, on your whistle. Okay. In, in the night. Move on, move on. <laughs> uh, Bristol, Solihull, 
Holmfirth in West Yorkshire, Chicago. Yeah. I don't think that came from my mother-in-law. It didn't come from mother-in-law. It came from another listener. She would be delighted. The, the other listener in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. And, and Wakefield. So. Yeah, now we don't promise to go to all of those places, but keep those suggestions coming in and we are going to, there'll be more, de- our London show is sold out, but there'll be more details about forthcoming shows on future episodes. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be future reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Ahir Shah. Hello. 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 Uh, thank you for um thank you for coming round. And just we, me. we just had an incredible revelation before we set the tape running. Um you were encouraged by your dad to go into comedy. Yes. It's the opposite to, to most people. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe he just wanted me to annoy others. You yeah. sure it wasn't a ploy to stop you going into comedy? Like, <laughs> you should go into comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he told me to go into comedy, uh, smoke 20 a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you're on tour at the moment with your show Control. Yes. Uh, I, I saw it. I guess uh, last year, and I thought it was so good. Do you want to tell people what, what it's what it's about? Uh, yeah, so basically I, I wrote a show the year before called Machines, which was predicated on the idea that at the given point in time we were standing on a precipice in history where we were being tugged in equal directions by a positive future of technological liberation and all of this sort of thing, and at the same time the resurgent worst of the reactionary past. Uh, and Control is very much predicated on the notion that the past appears to be winning. Uh, so I wrote jokes about that and milk, uh, and that's what the show consists of. <laughs> and so are you somebody who finds it easy to be cheerful about the future, given that then? No, there's no future. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all done. Uh, but, I mean, well, I'm, I'm 27 now. I turned 27 a week ago, so this year I'm going to sort of redefine my art form and or die, so I don't have to really think about much more. Because <laughs> it's that, uh, that age. Yeah, 20, exactly. So I've got 51 weeks to wrap it all up, and then it'll be, you guys can deal with it. Uh, so you've brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yeah. Uh, what, what is the first one? Uh, so potential reasons to be cheerful for the future. I think that there's a lot uh, achieving completion uh, in 2018. I look forward to Crossrail uh, existing. Basically, I bound my entire conception of the future into large-scale infrastructure projects. Uh, I'm self-employed. I have absolutely nothing on. Uh, so in order to give me any sense of what's going to be occurring in future, uh, I'm like, right, 2018, we've got... Uh, Crossrail, that's going to be pretty good. Uh, we're definitely going to see the release of Donald Trump's P-tape this year. That's going to be excellent. <laughs> uh, so there are just these, uh, like, you know, little things that you've got to place throughout the year yes. uh, as things that are going to cheer me up. I'm For the P-tape, I'm having a street party. I don't know uh, what... <laughs> Not a P-party. No, 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 no. It'll be very restrained. I'm thinking uh, sort of... Black tie event, get a, get a projector in the middle of Rosebury Road, uh, make sure, gather gather around all the families, little barbecue maybe. Um, and then for Crossrail, will you be having a similar party? <laughs> Crossrail, uh, yeah, Crossrail, Crossrail will be a bit more of a dress down affair. Right. Uh, it's, uh, Crossrail is nowhere near as significant as the P-tape. Because you, you are genuinely you a bit of a, a railways nerd, right? Yeah, so when I heard that you guys were talking about rail earlier... Uh, it was astonishingly exciting to me. And then I mentioned moving block signalling and Ed yeah, looked at me as though I was like from amazed. another planet. I mean, it's really... Uh, 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 go on, tell, give us your 30 <laughs> seconds on moving block signalling. Uh, basically, uh, when Railtrack was privatised in the early 90s, it was done on the promise of the existence of a technology that did not, at that given point in time, exist. And it turned out to be 
something that would not exist, uh, which fe- uh, fills me with a ludicrous degree of optimism for Hinckley. That's the nuclear power plant. Yeah, which is also seemingly uh, done on the promise of a type of reactor that has never successfully. I think you should be uh, presenting this practice. podcast. I mean, like replacing me. Don't <laughs> worry, Jeff. I mean, you incredibly well informed. I mean, to be honest, Ed, there is another job I would much rather you were doing than podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. So, Jeff, so Jeff, rather, I was doing it too. I thought uh, I was doing it. <laughs> uh, all right then. So, shall we move on to your next um, idea for a reason to be cheerful? All right. I think that um, another sort of looking ahead to the year to come uh, reason that I think uh, might be uh, to be cheerful is that we are going to have to start thinking more, I think, with the advent of automation and technologization about the future of work, what we uh, hold the purpose and need of work uh, to be uh, in our lives. Um And I think particularly uh, recently I've been reading and listening to a bunch of interesting stuff talking about how the future of work is going to be largely based around care, right, of uh, early years care and also care towards the end of life. Uh, And I think that that's going to be a really positive uh, way of moving society in the future to not necessarily just be uh, making sure that as many people as possible are focused on uh, nine to five things so that they can continue to sort of financially exist if not live uh, but actually thinking about what the purpose of our humanity can be and the ways in which we can work to create a better world together uh, i mean presumably there are limits this is sort of robots uh, what mm. they can do isn't it i mean yeah i, I sort of i'm think i'm with you which is that you know we're, we're sort of divided at the moment it seems to me between those who want to just be kind of wide-eyed about how brilliant technology is and those who want to sort of stop it and there must be a a different way forward which says how do we make it work for the benefit of humanity i mean it's coming mm. yeah and it should be really exciting medical advances you know, sort of, you know, liberating people. I mean, that that's truly the point of it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the most exciting consequence would be a form of technologicalized, uh, sorry, technologized liberation uh, from perhaps the necessity uh, to go to work every day. I know that you guys talked about UBI uh, on this podcast. On the, that was the very first one, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, uh, and that's something income. that yeah. <clears throat> certainly I'm. Uh, very interested in. And I do think that at the moment we can't necessarily just be Kinkanut standing in front of the uh, tide with his hand held out uh, insisting that it shan't sweep him away because these sorts of things are coming. And so we seem to be existing in a point where we have a very real choice to make about the sort of future that we want to build. Uh, And it could be one in which every facet of my life is controlled by Jeff Bezos. Uh, Or it could be one in which we free people to engage in I thought you were going to say, all one controlled by Jeff Lloyd. And I'd prefer prefer Jeff Lloyd to Jeff Bezos. Sorry. Uh, That is what we're working towards. The Jeffocracy will finally... Yeah, yes, it'll be a utopian... It's a choice of the Jeffs, I know, which I'm going for. Do do you remember, though, sort of growing up and watching things like Tomorrow's World or reading, like, kids' books about the future? They would always say one of the biggest challenges in the 21st mm. century is what human beings will do with all the leisure time we'll have because it would paint it as this kind of utopia where well the i mean keynes was at- talking about that in the 30s wasn't he they Keep say that you me. always overestimate the impact in the short term of technology and underestimate it in the long term and i think that is probably if you think about the tomorrow's world thing they were probably overestimating the short-term impact but perhaps 
you know, Tomorrow's World, the, there was no internet in the age of Tomorrow's World, was there? No. So, so in a way, they've underestimated the longer term. I, I think it can be a force for liberation, but I think we've got to apply ourselves to it. Mm. And as you say, not just try and stand in the way, nor just kind of say, isn't Amazon great? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Alexa absolutely terrifies me, uh, having that in your house. I think, like, it's sort of having the Alexa in your house really shows how much more amenable people would have been to the Stasi if the Stasi could play Despacito on command. <laughs> Uh, you don't have Alexa, do you? No, I don't. Either. I had a weird or experience the other, the other day. Um, there was some scenic thing on the television. I think fact, the, the Orient Express was on the television. Murder uh, on. It wasn't the murder oh. on. I think it was a nice holiday oh, on so the Murder just looking at the yes. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said to Sarah, Michael Portillo, I'd <laughs> love to go on that um, Orient Express one day. And then the next day I was looking at Instagram and an advert popped up in my oh. Instagram feed for the Orient Express. Now, I don't know if that was just coincidence or if it was listening to me. Yeah, I've heard, yeah. I've heard stories like this sufficiently frequently enough that yeah. well, your phone was listening to you yeah I thought it was just Mossad and the Chinese government that could do that not the Orient sort of... Express as well yeah. <laughs> wow and just in terms of your comedy tell us what you pick up about your audience in terms of the cheerful non-cheerful question because you you, you know we're, we're, the podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful mm. uh, we've noticed lots of people ripping off the idea at New Year I was pointing out to Jeff on email uh, lots and lots of different organisations saying, here are some reasons to be cheerful. That Jeff I mean, would, to be fair, we ripped it off Ian Dury yeah, in the Ian first Dury. <laughs> fair, fair enough. But would you say your audience is sort of not, you know, pessimistic, optimistic? I think at the moment it's quite difficult to separate the reasons to be cheerful from the reasons to be pessimistic. And part of that is to do with the way that we access news uh, at the moment, right? Like I'm definitely trying to be less constantly engaged yeah. with what's going on because I find that that just makes me like really, really upset about the state of uh, everything. And really, when you look at the paper at the moment, I, I just want a newspaper that's split into stuff that I can and can't do anything about. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. As I feel like there's plenty of stuff going on at the world at the moment that like, oh, right, these are opportunities to be better and do better for me, for all of us. Like this could be ways in which we can change the world for the better. Right. And then you turn over the page and it's like, yeah, but antibiotic resistant microbes will kill everyone you've ever loved yeah, anyway. Yeah. So that's what you can do. Uh, and yeah, so it, it is difficult in a sense to remain cheerful, where on the one hand, you're going, I could create a better world for my children, and then going, yeah, but I better hope they're born with gills. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, they're entirely screwed. There, there, there were, just incidentally, there was a very, very interesting tweet this week from um, this guy, George Lakoff, who, who wrote this book called Don't Think of an Elephant, which is about the way Republicans, or Conservatives in particular, frame things. And it was basically his sort of guy, I really recommend you looking at it, but it was mm. a guide to Trump's tweeting and he basically said which i think is completely unrealistic personally we should ignore the media should sort of more or less ignore trump's tweets because it is a sort of incredibly sophisticated device for framing oh everything. god yeah the four-dimensional chess yeah, nonsense yeah. Right? Don't do you not think it. that credits it's him like, with too much yeah, intelligence it's occam's Maybe. razor man like either this guy who has been an impetuous narcissistic moron for the last several <laughs> decades is an impetuous narcissistic moron or he is the single smartest human being who has ever existed in the history of the world and this has been an but, elaborate but, ruse no, but the for thing decades is, i think he knows what he's doing he knows there's a book about to come saying 
you know, with Steve Bannon saying that he, you know, was treasonous in relation to Russia. So that morning he tweets some ridiculous thing about North Korea and he's got a bigger button than them because he wants distraction. I mean, I, I think there is a sort of pattern to his to his madness. Yeah, yeah. He, he knows I think there's a madness it. to his madness. Maybe, uh, maybe that's I think true. that's far more likely. Maybe that's true. <laughs> maybe that's true. Uh, the show is Control. Um, if people want to find out, it's, it's, it's up and down the country at the moment. Uh, yep. So for the next couple of months... It, it's all around the country and finishing with another week at the Soho Theatre in March uh, in London. It is about uh, the future fascism and milk. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And that was our podcast. Anything you need to get off your chest before we... Yeah, uh... definitely. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about private to rail services look I, I was sending somebody a christmas card somebody who a birthday card sorry somebody who used to work for me who was turning 70 and okay i left it a little bit late because it was january the 4th was his birthday and i and i i knew it was coming and i was positively aware of it and i wanted to make sure i sent him the card but i left it for january the 3rd right and, and then i and then during the day i suddenly thought well, i've got to buy this card and i bought the card you know stamp all of that stuff and this is a similar, the same time as the Michael Portillo business. And, uh, and, and so I forced my kids to go to the post office or a shop where you could buy the card, not the post office, buy, buy the card. Right. And then I thought, right, okay, where is, where can I post this? So it's got a chance of getting there the next day. What, but basically the, the post boxes around me were like 9 a.m. pickups. Well, what, what use is a 9 a.m. pickup? You're, you're right. I mean, not, but 9 a.m. pickup. You know, you're not going to post a letter before 9am, probably. And so basically, it's going to be like the previous day's letter. Because if you post it at 9.15am, do you see what I mean? I do. And then I looked on the website at one of the post boxes near me to see what time it was being picked. I said 5.30. Okay, maybe I misread it, but I don't think I did. And it was 9am. Now, there was a (laughs) 4pm near me, but I'd miss the effing 4pm. Now, and then the other thing this reminds me of, Marx and Engels, right? Right, yes. Now, bear with me here. You're going somewhere with this. Yeah. My father used to say that Marx and Engels used to live on different sides of Primrose Hill. Now, I don't know whether this is true. They did definitely live, well, I think Engels lived on one side of Primrose Hill. And he said they used to write to each other a lot. And they used to be like six pickups a day. Now, okay, I'm not saying six pickups a day, but definitely when I was younger, there was more than one pickup from the post box. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, there's, well, no, no way anymore. It's like... One pickup and you've had your chips. We are going to haul the Postmaster General onto this podcast and he's got some serious questions to answer. But there should be a later pickup, shouldn't they? I, I, I understand your frustration. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've neutralised your, your annoyance there. Yeah, I that. feel that you're All you're, people you're want to be is heard it. and understood. Exactly. Thank yeah. you for hearing me and understanding me. <laughs> Thanks to Emma Corsham for producing our podcast and Alex Feisbryce and Lindsay Todd for the policy research. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dance. Ed Seed wrote the music. And Emily Powell designed them Christmas our... cards, by the way. I know you did. That was very thoughtful of you. Did you? I didn't send any Christmas cards this uh, year. Fair enough. Because I really care about the environment. Yeah, that's true. And also I left it too late to buy them and stuff. Funnily and enough, so on. funnily enough, I was on the last, I don't know whether you saw it, but I was on the last, I think you did. I was on the last leg on the- I'll tell you why I saw it, because you t- texted me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, I know. <laughs> Thanks for revealing that. I was on the last leg delivering this giant Christmas card to uh, Adam, Alex, and um, the other bloke, <laughs> Josh. Uh, and, Josh. Uh, and um, he, it's a giant Christmas card. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I, I'm sort of quite. We haven't we haven't got possession of the giant Christmas card because it seems to have gone missing. But we're hoping to sort of retake possession. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. I don't think it. The I mean, I think different people have different traditions. Yeah. But I don't think it's take a back norm to ask card. for a Christmas card back. To be fair, I sent them a sort of smaller one right. alongside it. But I sort of take your point, really. Yeah. I do take your point. <laughs> and uh, we should thank our guests as well from this week's podcast. Yes, uh, we'd like to thank Andrew Donis, Nicole Badstuber and Anton uh, Volk. As well as Ahir Shah, who's on tour with his show Control. Um, well, I suppose I should go and trim my beard a little bit to keep you happy. When did you last not have a beard? I, so I've fairly much had a beard since I was about 25. I am now 44. Um, but I went to a fancy dress. You know the, the secret cinema, they do these big outdoor screenings of different films. And they did an outdoor screening of Back to the Future a couple of years ago, um, where you go along in fancy dress. And of course, that film is set in the late 50s. And nobody apart from submarine captains had beards. And communists and submarine captains had beards back then. So I shaved it off. And I'd always had the idea in my head that if I was to shave the beard off, I would look very young. I would. I'd look like the. Yeah. I'd be like the the twenty yeah. four year old. Even me. younger. It would be frozen in yeah. amber beneath the yeah. beard. Uh, but I shaved it off, and it turned out I'm very jowly, like a nana. Really. The more of my face that is covered maybe, up, the better. Maybe I'm considering a balaclava. Maybe if you lost a bit of weight, you'd <laughs> <laughs> be less jowly. <laughs> no, and that's only what my wife said to me. She said you're looking a bit jowly the other day. <laughs> what you're saying is, should I feel self-conscious about my bushy beard, or should I feel con- self-conscious about my portliness? You're perfect just the way you are. Oh, stop it! He's been jowly. He's been the guy with the too long beard, <laughs> and these have been reason to be cheerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.